Welcome to the Grazing Grass Podcast, episode 40. Study what your neighbors do and do the opposite. You're listening to the Grazing Grass Podcast, helping grass farmers learn from grass farmers. And every episode features a grass farmer and their operation. I'm your host, Cal Hardich. On today's show, we have James Coffin of Ohio Land and Cattle. We discuss low input management of the ranch's Angus cows, as well as paddlefish and hunting. But first, if you haven't signed up for our email list, go to Grazing Grass and sign up for it. One more thing. I announced a new release schedule for our podcast on the last episode. As you are aware of, it failed. Also, as you know, we're working on a health issue affecting our schedule. More about that at the end. So henceforth, yes, I do like that word, henceforth. Anyways, henceforth, new episodes will continue to be available on Wednesdays as available. I already said available in there twice. You get the gist. Anyway, enough of that. Let's talk to James. James, we want to welcome you to the Grazing Grass Podcast. We're excited to have you here today. Can you start by telling us a little bit about yourself and your operation? Well, I'm 59 years old. We've been uh, ranching about 20 years. Uh, Prior to that, I had a a company that... uh, installed computer systems in restaurants and schools and uh, concurrently began accumulate, accumulating uh, land. And uh, right now the ranch is uh, uh, 7,500 acres. We own 5,500 of it. It's the second largest ranch in the state. Um, and I use the word ranch purposely because we do not raise crops, including hay. Um, it is simply an animal operation, which includes uh, about a thousand head of uh, registered black Angus. We raise uh, police dogs, believe it or not. And uh, oh yes, yeah. And in addition, we've got 160 acres of water in the form of uh, 12 lakes and 10 ponds. And uh, we raise paddlefish in the water so we farm the water as well oh, very interesting in addition uh, we've got two guys at work uh, they have a dozer and they do logging so we've got uh, several years worth of logging to do we ship two semi loads a week and kind of the point I'm making is uh, land is an investment and uh, we have it working many different ways right very true and I'm sitting in our hunting lodge because uh, our internet's down at home. So uh, I came here, and uh, beginning the week after next, we'll have 70, uh, or begin having 70 hunters through the deer season. In. And uh, that's a lucrative business, which is on top of the cattle operation. So stacking enterprises on that same footprint. Yes. And... Uh, We've got uh, gas and oil pads on their way. We've got one or two here now, six more coming. And, uh, and then the uh, solar stuff uh, looks lucrative if it actually works. Yes, yes. So, James, let's jump back a little bit to you started ranching about 20 years ago. What got you interested in ranching? 
I grew up on a farm. It was a horse farm in uh, 300 acres. And uh, so farming kind of gets in your blood. <laughs> yes. And uh, then I was uh, in the uh, uh, computer world for a while and sold that company. And But concurrently, I bought some property and some cattle and uh, uh, just started accumulating every piece of land that uh, was contiguous to us. So it started at the first piece was 528 acres, and uh, we've grown it in 20 years to 5,500 owned acres and then 2,000 leased acres. And where are you located? Cadiz, Ohio, C-A-D-I-Z, and that's 55 miles uh, west of Pittsburgh. Oh, okay. Just slightly north of I-70. And when you started um, purchasing your land, did you immediately go into registered angus business no not not immediately i originally bought it just for the hunting uh or recreation oh okay uh, but a lot of it was open ground so the follow-up is how do you uh, reduce property taxes uh, and the answer is via caub but you needed some cows to uh, qualify or some you needed something oh yes and uh, the cattle yeah yeah and i uh First group of cattle uh, are the opposite of where we are now. <laughs> Everything was wrong. <laughs> and and why was that? Well, a, a, a couple thoughts, uh, and this this is going to lead into the grazing to to some degree. Um, in choosing cattle. Uh, I only look at four numbers. One is I want cavities, that is a, a birth weight EPD in the Angus world of around zero. That produces, uh, in a few generations, that will produce a uh, heifer calf that weighs 60 to 65 pounds, uh, a bull calf that's maybe 63 to 70. Uh, this year we pulled one calf and it happened to be a twin and it was turned around, but uh, we don't pull calves. Uh, we don't, uh, we just don't have problems. Oh, yes. I think I read on your, your website about your calving or your calf weights at birth or birth weight that um, your calves really stay within that range really well. Well, that here's the key is there, there's 70 plus generations into breeding. Not me. Uh, I sell a lot of cattle, and uh, so many people uh, will want to do their own genetic thing. Well, unless you're Adam and Eve, you're not doing your own genetic thing. <laughs> uh, somebody helped you. In our case, yes. uh, uh, Pine Bank is probably the predominant influence. Pine Bank of New Zealand. And uh, we, we went to New Zealand and spent time with Gavin Falloon and his son. Uh, looked at their entire herd. So imagine uh, 75 years ago, Gavin Falloon, who's in his 90s now, uh, meets with a geneticist. Uh, he's got in his mind what the ideal cow is, and you define that as, uh, you know, a 1,000, 1,050, maybe 1,100-pound cow at the, at the biggest. Um, Cavanese, moderate milk, Calves need milk, but not not much. But milk drives the uh, maintenance requirements year-round, whether they're lactating or not. 
we need low maintenance requirements so they flush easier, breed back easier, and uh, marble well for the grass finish world. Uh, when you're finishing on grass, uh, not every cow can do that. Uh, and lastly, uh, uh, is a high dollar EM. That's a, an Angus term, but it's a measure of efficiency, which has a lot to do with weaning weights, which uh, I want below uh, below 40, milk below 20, dollar EN above 15, birth weight, uh, EPD of around zero. Okay, jumping back on that PDF, I was writing these down just so I could refer back to them. Kevin, about zero, um, weaning weight you want less than 40, milk you want less than 40, and what was the last one? No. Milk less than 20. Less than 20? 20. 20, yeah. Oh, okay. The average, or you, you look in the Angus bowl books, and uh, they'll have milk in the 30s and 40s. And uh, that is that drives the maintenance requirements uh, of everything year-round, uh, which is why you want it lower. A cow, the first thing she's going to do is survive. The second thing she's going to do is flesh. The third thing she's going to do is get bred. And that fleshing has a lot to do with breeding. Hormones and fat work together. And the fourth thing is raise a calf. And uh, as I mentioned, they need some milk, but not that much. And uh, if somebody made the case that uh, the more milk, the bigger the calf, it's true, a little bit. Is it worth it, though? Because uh, the higher efficiency, the more cattle you can run on the same grass, and the biggest effect on profit is uh, stocking rate. The more cattle you have, the better. I'd rather have 120 of the cow I just described than a hundred performance cattle that you can buy anywhere. And frankly, the industry is chasing. And when you started with Angus, uh, were they more the industry cows or did you buy cows that fit this uh, description you're g giving? Well, it, they, they fit the opposite of the description. That is, they were large calves, high milkers, large animals, uh, and uh, they, they would be dead in our current management, which is year-round grazing, uh, no shots, no worming. The only thing they get is minerals. What did you do to get those original cows to where they are now? I mean, we kind of uh, touched upon part of it was that your selection for bulls. Well, started reading a bunch like uh, you have. And uh, uh, because after about three years, uh, that is producing performance cattle and uh, dumping them into the uh, sale barn, financially, I'm a businessman before I'm anything. Um, it didn't work. It was a waste of time. So how do you make it work? And the short answer is we've got to get the cost down, which we do with efficient, problem-free, cattle that can survive on grass year-round uh, and then in addition or the flip side is sell into a premium market 
which is uh, grass finished. Uh, in addition, uh, and kind of a side issue, is the farther you go up the supply chain, the more money there is. Um, the, the producer is the bottom of the supply chain. Next is uh, the feedlot. We don't have a feedlot. We finish them right on the farm. Now then, uh, next is the uh, processing, the butcher, and we own a butcher shop. Next is, uh, it goes from the butcher shop to the whoever's going to eat it, or a restaurant, and we own the restaurant. So the restaurant's called Ranch to Table. Oh, yes. So a cow's born here, and we eat it at some point in the future in the restaurant. Very good. Our cow costs are about two ninety three a year, and imagine uh, that calf. We have a calf, two ninety three a year, beginning the second year. It's on the mother's tab the first year. Uh, let's pretend we uh, keep it till it's between five and eight years old, and uh, now it's in the restaurant, and at a value of uh, north of five thousand in the restaurant in the form of burgers and roasts and so on. Right. And, and, you know, having that, that restaurant, when I, when I think about, you know, selling the cuts, retail cuts, that restaurant's just an added layer upon that. It's a very top layer. Yes. And I didn't mention, but in the butcher shop, then we have a retail store also. Oh yes. So that does pretty well. And once you start eating that type of meat, I mean, you, you never order meat if you go to a restaurant uh, other than ours, or we don't, I should say. Oh, yes. You, know, you have spaghetti or something you're not used to, but because <laughs> it's, it's just not good. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Interestingly, in, in the butcher shop, my favorite meat is a five to eight-year-old cow, not a steer, you know, that has been pushed, et cetera. Uh, in Europe, they want the oldest uh, cow they can get because the meat has more flavor. Now, they, what you give up a little bit with that age is tenderness, but it's easy to recapture that with uh, by simply aging it longer. Aging is another word for drying, and that makes the meat more dense and breaks it down, and you recapture that tenderness, and you have a more dense flavor. So you're taking, uh, you have a cow in your system. You are finishing her on grass and butchering her five to eight years old. And then how long do you age that meat? Two and a half, three weeks. The normal hanging time is five days. What do you do with your steers that's coming that you're raising? Well, one person bought uh, 120 and then I've got groups of 30 and 20 and 10 and et cetera. Interestingly, uh, Pennsylvania is the, the biggest uh, outlet for them. And we're, we're close to Pennsylvania, 50 miles. But uh, people are just dying for all natural steers. And I want the steers out of here as quickly as I can get them out because I want to use the grass for females. This is a female business. We need bulls. But uh, you think about a steer, it's going to grow, that's it. A female is going to grow and calve 
a cow is going to eat in calf. Now a young female is going to eat 3% of her body weight. Let's pretend that she gets bred at 600, 650, has her first calf at 850. Um, she's eating 3% of her body weight compared with an 1,100-pound cow who's also eating 3%. They both had a calf. What's the difference? One ate more than the other. So young females are the, uh, the key on the production side. Um, on the eating side, we want to turn those cows. This is another point is between five and eight, you know, they're, they're great cows, problem free. Problems are going to start around that age and people will jump up and down and say, you know, grandpa had a 20 year old cow and so on. And I'm sure that's true, but that's, there's people that live to be a hundred, but the average is 81. What you're describing reminds me a little bit. Uh, I think it's been contributed to Wally Olson, some on the high turnover herd where you're selling your your cows at their peak value time. That's exactly right. The, our industry spends so much time talking about depreciation. Let's talk about appreciation. Yes. That is, here's a heifer and it's worth, uh, you could take her to the sale barn as an example, and she'd bring 700, 750 maybe. Um, in the registered world, she'd be a little more than that. In the all-natural registered world, she'd be uh, 1,000, 1,100. Now then, I keep her six months and breed her. Now she's 1,800. Uh, she has a calf. Uh, gets bred back. Now she's a three and one. That is a cow, calf at side, uh, bred back. Now she's 2,800. Now she goes to the butcher shop uh, when she's five, five to eight, and dump calves along the way, which is why we want females, not males. Now we have we have 50 bulls. That's because I sell bulls. Oh, yes. Um, uh, but then she goes to the restaurant and she's north of five, 5,000. So that's appreciated. Yes, it is. In the business work. Yes. <laughs> if on the other hand, we our our goal is, uh, or our model is producing calves and dumping them at the sale barn. Uh, let's call it what it is. It's a hobby. It's a pastime. Uh, there's no money in it. And uh, we're in one of the only industries where we have to compete with people that are in the business because they they love the lifestyle and appreciate cattle. Set aside, they may not even know if they make any money because they've got an off-farm job. We have to compete with people that don't have to make money. That's oh, a yes. tough industry. And the average herd east of the Mississippi is 18 head. Oh, that's an interesting statistic there. So on your process, you've got these cows aging. At what age are you selling your steers? It, well, yesterday I had a call. A guy wanted them at 300 pounds, believe it or not. Oh. Um, but the norm is four or 500. The ideal is get rid of them at 450 pounds. Oh, yeah. That's the... Uh, that's where the line crosses between uh, how much are they eating and getting them out of here uh, to preserve the grass to get through winter uh, with no hay.
When when are you calving your cows? Uh, June, July. Okay. The uh, <clears throat> here's the reasoning is when does a cow need the most grass? And it's the end of her gestation and the beginning of uh, lactation. Uh, the longest day of the year is June 21st. So the ideal is June 21st is right in the middle of your cabin. Oh, yes. Plus, uh, I want to be out of sync with the marketplace. Uh, that is, the market has the mentality of let's calve early. Uh, so we grow up the calf and sell it at fall. So let's, here's an idea. Let's calve early and let's all sell our calves at the same time, flood the market and sell at the lowest possible price. Isn't that a good model? Right. <laughs> and, and you have, so do you, when those calves are born, those bull calves, are you banding or cutting them no. early or are you letting them grow out a little bit? Uh, well, Two, two thoughts is I need to pick out bulls, and it's hard to pick out right. bulls when they're calves. So uh, we leave everything. Yeah, that's out. true. In fact, in addition, the industry um, will cut them early and then put a growth ear tag in to replace the hormones that uh, they used to have that were cut off. So uh, we band them, and uh, band them as late as 10 months. That is, we're picking out the bulls. Right. Uh, now, we have several groups of cows, um, and one is, you know, our elite seed stock herd. Everything else feeds off of that. All, all our bulls come from that group. And uh, for the most part, we'll take the other groups and ban everything unless it's exceptional, you know, real standout. It's like picking out your uh, son-in-law when he's in fifth grade. It's tough. <laughs> yeah, let him get old. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That that's a pretty good analogy. I've never heard that analogy before, but that's a pretty good one. You've brought up some really interesting points already. I knew you would just from your website, and um, getting those steers off your place because you need that grass for growing females or breeding females makes so much sense rather than holding on to them for longer right get them out of here and the earlier the better yes so do you wean the steers or bulls uh we do before they leave um but that's this is such a great point we'd never wean the heifer calves the cow weans them herself she'll wean them about six weeks before she has her next calf. She'll just dry out. Once you started doing that, has that always worked pretty well? Have you had any issues with that? We had a couple cows that would nurse. Once she had the new calf, she would let the last year's calf nurse. But once again, the calves don't need that much milk. We didn't worry about it. Some would say, well, we call that cat cow, etc. cetera. Uh, you know what? The calf did fine. And uh, the, the new calf did fine. There was enough. Um, go from there and most importantly the enemy of cattle is stress and weaning is very stressful uh, going to the kill shop is very stressful that is we chase them around for half a day haul them for half a day they stand there all night with no food and water probably um, hunger is stressful working them 
uh, for shots is stressful. Uh, running them through and warming is stressful. Doing anything is stressful except calling them to the next pasture for some new grass. They like that. So when a calf is born, until she leaves here, the probability is we never touch her again. Do you tag your baby calves or? Yes. Oh, but yes. that's because we're in the registered business. The benefit of the registered business is I can look back, you know, 12 generations and just follow it all the way back. And that matters when we're selling bulls and so on. If I was commercial, I would not tag the calves. I wouldn't do a thing. So, so my question with not doing anything there, how do you know the cows who didn't wean a calf or raise a calf? Well, when, uh, in, in our case, we'll get them because they're registered, we'll get them in and anything that's not tagged, right. we'll, we will tag. And then we just watch, you can get, if you didn't tag any of them, you could figure out in the pen, roughly half of them. The other half, you just put any tag in with a unique number and uh, just go out in the field and see who's sucking on who. Oh, yes. I know um, I've read about different people saying about not tagging. I tried that with my hair sheep this year. I thought I'm not going to mess with them when they're born. And I thought I should be able to pick them up later. And I know hair sheep are different than beef cattle, but that was a... A mess for me and it's probably something I did wrong in there but boy I I was not a fan of it after I did it I'm not saying it won't work but I I've got to figure it out or understand it a little bit better well one one nuance with cattle is uh, we can look at their udders and tell if they've got a calf on them or not that's very true yes and if they don't that's going to be the best eating for the butcher shop there is is an open cow and we have a, a high-priced outlet in the form of the butcher shop and restaurant, so it's not that big a deal. And on that note, by the way, there's a lot of discussion about having a tight calving season. You know, breed these heifer, this heifer group for 45 days, and et cetera. You know, number one, a late calf is better than no calf. But, uh, three years ago, uh, we needed 11 cows to kill. And I didn't have them. We've got a thousand head out here. Everything either had a calf or was close to having a calf because we had a tight calving season. I don't want a tight calving season. So we put the bulls in for 60 days. And that 60 days is our breeding window. Having said that, we leave the bulls in for four more months just to make sure everything gets bred. And then whatever is not tagged, we know is late because we stop running around because that costs money and time to run around checking everything on 7,500 acres. That's 12 square miles. Now the cattle aren't on the whole thing all the time. They're in pastures, but they're in five different groups. So motion costs money. Yes. Now, furthermore on the, on the subject of low input management, imagine the scenario that, uh, um, you didn't wean the heifer calves, which means you're not chasing them around the county, you know, because they're looking for their mother and they're out on the roads. And so, uh, the steers, when we uh, when we wean them, and by the way, the bull calves will leave on ten months also. We separate the the bull calf 
mothers with the bull calf. They go in their own pasture, so they're away from the heifers. The steers will go in a pen that they cannot get out of. Uh, it's impenetrable. Oh, yes. <laughs> um, the uh, heifer calves stay with their mothers, no issue. So imagine erasing from your life half of the weaning, two-thirds of the weaning, frankly, because some are going to be bulls, uh, erase from the, the exercise of working them for shots, erase from your life warming. All you do is put minerals out. Erase from your life making hay and feeding hay. That's not possible. We're about the most north, north you can do that around the 38th parallel, which is just, uh, as a reference, just south of I-70, a number of miles across the country. That's the best grass finishing area in the world. And likewise, south of the equator. That is, you've got fairly moderate summers, fairly good moisture, fairly moderate winters. If you go, we're nine miles north of I-70, which is probably 15 miles north of the 38th parallel. That's about as far north as you can get without feeding some. And uh, like you, my neighbors, they're feeding hay now. And uh, we fed one day in the last six years. And that was not because of the depth of the snow, but we got a layer of ice on top of it. Oh, yes. The weather freak, yeah. Um, and a lot of people would say, well, what about blackleg? Have you ever had it? Yes, we have. One year, uh, we lost six calves. And it seems like they were right around the 400, 450 range. And you just go out there one day, everything's fine. The next day, there's six dead calves. I had an autopsy on them, and it was blackleg. Now then, as a businessman, I think this, think about this, is vaccinating for a thousand head, just call it the last 10 years, what's that cost? And what was the value of those six calves? So the calves make me sad, but I'll trade that, I'll take that financial transaction all day. Somehow we pretend it's a business. Yes. You also mentioned besides your, your shots, you don't warm your cows. Correct. How long have you been not deworming them? 10 years. Let's accept the idea that, uh, Every cow is going to have worms here. Now then, it's a small worm load, and what makes the worm load small is health and good grazing management. We generally have them eat the top half. We use a Jim Garish model, uh, that is, eat the top half, uh, leave the bottom half, and most of your parasites are in the bottom half. In addition, we, uh, we want that ground cover all the time for the sake of uh, growing back and we just keep moving them and by the way our pastures are different sizes the groups of cattle are different sizes we simply watch the grass when the top half is roughly gone then we move them by doing that also uh, we have almost no pink eye if you eat eat it down to the less nutrient portion of the plant uh, then the animal is less healthy and then you have more problems when you're moving your cows, how often? Well, it, there's no answer to that. Uh, when they've eaten the top half, I could take 200 cows. They're in a 200-acre pasture. 
and we move them to a hundred acre pasture, uh, we'll move them out of there more quickly because there's it's smaller. But just the the rule is top half move, top half move, and never stop. And by the way, include keep moving them in the winter even because uh, they'll soil an area and they won't eat around that area. If they circle back in a month, that that area is cleaned up and now they'll eat some more. We've talked about your your cattle and your management of it. What about your infrastructure for your pastures? What kind of fencing are you using? Two strand high tinsel. Um, and we, uh, interesting subject, um, we've got locust trees everywhere. Oh, yes. Yeah, so uh, it's simple to go out. A couple guys can cut 100 a day and put it, stack them so the tractor with the forks can pick them up and move them. Now, let me ramble through that. Somebody would say that's free. Well, I would suggest it's not free. Uh, number one, it requires uh, two men's labor to produce 100 posts. That's not easy work, by the way, uh, and we're getting older. Uh, number two, then, is the tractors running around, uh, hauling it, burning the tires up on the road with a uh, forklift of, uh, or fork full of uh, posts. Now then, if you're using those posts, you need a pounder, and I promise you they, sh they should sell pounders in pairs, one for parts and the other for the back of the tractor. And, uh, and the one on the back of the tractor should have a welder attached on the side. <laughs> um, they're, they're high maintenance machines. And uh, literally, I guarantee we have to have it in the shop twice a year or some type of welding or brake, et cetera. Uh, now then, we're moving to a timeless fence. Oh, yes. And uh, when you're pounding them, it takes two people. Somebody's running the tractor. The other's doing the actual pounding. Now, with this timeless fence, which we've just started using, I, b I bought a pallet full of posts. And uh, the posts, I think, were six fifty dollars apiece. They were five-and-a-half-foot posts. A drill on Amazon, uh, a hammer drill, uh, was two hundred and twenty nine dollars, uh, and then the bit, which is eighteen inches long, uh, was uh, seventy or so. So now one person throws fifty posts on the back of a ranger, puts one post in, puts another one way far, puts a string, drill a hole, put the post two pounds. That post is eighteen inches in. The, the drill is drilling the pilot hole. That is, the posts are one, one and a quarter. The, the drill bit is one and an eighth, so it's tight. There's no uh, insulators. Uh, you just string the wire through. And uh, one or two strands, if it's just a divider. One is good if it's a divider fence. Two, if it's a perimeter, or three, or whatever you want. There's ten holes in it and they're pre-drilled, um, that's the model. It's a one, fencing is a one-man job with that model. And they'll last 100 years. I've, I've seen those timeless posts. They look pretty nice. I have not personally used any of them yet, but probably one day. Right. I'd like to, to talk just a second about your paddlefish and your hunting. Um, but before we move to that, do you have anything else you'd like to add about the cattle before we move on? The key is good pasture management 
and and by the way, there are three steps. There's set stocking, which is what half my neighbors do, which is why their pastures look like a golf course, shorter than a golf course most of the year. And the grass can't grow back because uh, there's no roots because it's this tall. Next is uh, Jim Garrish's model, which we do. Um, having said that, the ultimate model is mob grazing that is giving them or having the highest possible density for the shortest possible time. And uh, I've got customers that move them twice a day. The, in our case, the challenge is water and forest, which is why we've stayed with the uh, rotational grazing. But uh, the, if, if you accept the idea that uh, the stocking rate is the highest effect on profitability of any other factor, highest grazing management achieves that is mob grazing or which achieves that. So there's three, three steps. And the, the follow-up then is um, we've got a very elite herd. It's not because we're so amazing at picking out genetics, which are a combination of pine bank, which is 75 generations into their breeding. Why? Owned by the, it's a herd owned by the University of Maryland. They're 70 some years into their breeding, a particular type. And then Oldie uh, is uh, super high quality. That's where Pharaoh got his start, actually. That oh, okay. Buying the small Oldie bulls and then selling them as pharaoh bulls and oldie probably has the most influence in the pharaoh program and what i've just talked about is breeders that is people imagining the perfect cow and how do we achieve that and i said cow what bull will produce that cow that matters having said that these big bull producers i like them and a lot of them are my friends pharaoh included um, but they're really marketers uh, in the sense that they rely on producers, and I was a producer, and those producers turn over at about 20% a year. You can't stack generations when 20% of the production is turning over with new genetics each year. And uh, if you're less than 10 generations in, you really don't have a type. You're, you're getting closer. It's like uh, we have the dog, the dog that barked here a few minutes ago is our cattle dog. And when my wife picked him up, she said, I hope he has short hair. I said, well, did, did you see his parents? She said, yeah. Did they have short hair? No. He's probably not going to have short hair. Now, he might. Probably not. Did you see his grandparents by chance? No. I saw pictures. Did they have short hair? No. Okay, so it just went from 90% no to 95%. You go one more generation. Did they have short hair? No. Now it's 98%. It never gets to 100. Uh, that's where redheaded people come from. You know, it was just an odd, <laughs> an outlier. <laughs> But uh, yes. every, my point is, and this is a big one, every generation makes it more certain that you're going to get that type. Now then, once you are replicating that type, then it's all about calling. Any, anything with a disposition problem, uh, a foot problem, if a bull has a problem, 
usually if they have one problem, they're going to have another one shortly thereafter. Probably the same problem again. Just get rid of them. And what I did not just say is sell them to a customer. That's what sale barns are right. for. And I uh, communicate to our customers, if, if you see one of our cattle at a sale barn, uh, don't buy it because there's a problem. Because it wouldn't be there. It'd be in the butcher right. or uh, breeding. I appreciate all the information you've given us about cattle. And I mentioned this a time or two. You've got rolls of information on your website. And I know we've just kind of touched the surface. But just to keep time down, let's move on to a couple other topics. One I didn't even know before tonight. You mentioned paddlefish? Yes. Uh, a paddlefish, and they're they're pictured on the uh, website there. It's uh, it's kind of like a catfish with a sword on it. Probably the top guy in the world is uh, from the University of Kentucky. Uh, a guy named Steve. He's a professor there. He's retired now, but he wrote the book on paddlefish. They're native to North America, uh, and uh, especially the Mississippi River, and so on. And they grow, we bought 4,400 of them and spread them out amongst six of the lakes. Uh, you buy them, in this case, when they're four years old, so they're bigger, they're as big as the bass, so the bass don't eat them, otherwise the bass would eat them. And they, oh, yes. they gain about 10 pounds a year. And when they're 10 years old, uh, they'll weigh about 80 pounds. Now then, uh, they'll, they'll, uh, dress at about 40% of that and uh, it's like a smoked catfish but most importantly is the females in the spring will have uh, average about nine pounds of caviar that caviar on Amazon sells for uh, $50 an ounce now follow me here nine oh. pounds $50 an ounce retail so assume wholesales half that uh, it's millions if it works. Now, we lost all of them in one lake that we were very dry last year and the lake went too low. And oh, yes. We lost them. And then I, I've had uh, a problem with an eagle. Uh, the eagle would go down and just, they they like the top water and the eagle would go down and grab them, but uh, he's he's gone away, which doesn't mean we did anything. He just happened to go away. Thank heavens. Yes. <laughs> So on the caviar, with uh, is that something you harvest each year? Or is that just something you harvest when you harvest the fish at the end? Well, when you take the caviar, you kill them. Oh, okay. That shows my um, lack of knowledge there. Take the meat and the caviar. Yeah, you get one shot. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Having said that, they'll live fifty-five up to 55 years. So uh, you only harvest in the spring what you have a market for. So uh, the first year, oh, yes. know, we're waiting until they're 10 years old, which is a couple more years, but uh, um, we'll harvest our best guess at what we can uh, sell. Uh, and you can freeze it, including the caviar, and uh, just go back and get a sense the first year of what we can sell and then harvest whatever we think we can sell the second year so on but you have 55 years to do it um and just a little side note is they're like a shark uh, they have to swim all the time and they're they are plant eaters 
they're not competing with uh, the game fish. Uh, but because they're plant eaters, you can't catch them. You have to net them. And in our case, oh, our, yes. our ground is uh, uh, strip mine ground, which means most of the lakes are long and deep and narrow, yes. which means you put the net across and, uh, you know, not that big a net and uh, just catch them. They run into a net. It's got 12 inch uh, or eight inch rather squares and they run into it and then they can't back out of it because their gills are open. Oh, interesting. Well, James, thank you for indulging me just on that real quick overview on the paddlefish. Uh, I did find it on your website now under Ranching Water. I hadn't even looked at that. That's very interesting. Yeah, and, and that an acre of water costs the same as an acre of land, and it grows no it grass. Does. So the follow-up is how do we gain production from that investment? And 160 acres at 2,500 an acre. That's uh, some money. That is, yes. I, I think that's a really good utilization of that water. Uh, my dad and I have, have talked about how to utilize our water, and we are not yet, but we have too many acres underwater as well. Not not near 160 acres, but we probably have a dozen acres underwater. So how to utilize that so that we're getting some kind of income from it. And lastly, before we go to our famous four questions, you mentioned hunting and you're in your hunting lodge. And you also mentioned you purchased your land in the beginning for hunting purposes. We have in my area, lots of land that are owned by hunters. That's, that's just sitting there. I have approached some of them about leasing it, leasing their land, but they're all very cautious about that because in their their experience, cattle and hunting don't work together. How does it work for you? Well, it, it absolutely does work together. Um, the uh, There's no group of people who I enjoy more than hunters, and there's no group of people that is more brain dead when it comes to money than hunters. <laughs> <laughs> um, the cattle and the, the deer... Uh, don't bother each other a bit. The cattle keep the uh, pastures and, frankly, woods, if, if they're permitted to go into them, uh, vegetative. Would, if the hunters are feeding, I don't know if you can bait in your state or not, then the cattle you know, will go eat the corn if they dump a bag of corn. Oh, yes. So it's it's be very easy to structure a lease that the cattle are in there up until... Uh, two weeks before hunting season, they don't go back in until hunting season is over, which, which by the way, then is late winter. And uh, now the cattle go in and clean things up. And on that, on that note, we've got a, uh, I bought a dozer and then hired two guys that ship two semi loads of timber out uh, a week. Now, I enjoy the money from the timber, but that's not the purpose. The uh, purpose is to take woods. Nothing is more, less productive than a mature forest. Uh, wildlife can't reach anything. Cattle can't reach anything. And sun can't reach the ground. So uh, our approach is we're cutting every tree 14 inches 
and above and using it for timber. We happen to have a company that they'll take the grade wood, that is stuff that will be cut into uh, um, boards, cut it into boards, but the other stuff they'll use for firewood and they uh, supply the truck stops and campgrounds and so on. But everything over 14 inches we take. So uh, I didn't say we're clear cutting. We're thinning it out. Now then, the moment that sun, some of the, the sun hits some of that uh, forest bed, magically you have grass. And something for wildlife oh, yes. to eat, uh, something for cattle to eat, a good place to winter, etc. So you've taken forest, which is useless, and uh, turned it into something productive for wildlife and the cattle, especially winter. Now, we don't put them in the woods when we're calving because we're checking them in our case. Uh, if we were commercial, I wouldn't care. But uh, once again, making unproductive land productive uh, through thinning the trees, thinning them, not clear cutting. Thinning. Yes, thinning them. And what, what also happens in the summer when it's dry, you know, in those shaded areas, uh, or the areas that have some shade keep growing longer than the field that is baking. So diversity is a, a key here. And uh, with the hunting, in our case, we, we've got a very good deer population, very strict on trespassers. They talk to the sheriff. We catch them one time. They talk to the sheriff that time. Uh, and consequently, because of that, we don't have little, if any, trespassing. Uh, number two, we, we have a 130 minimum on oh, whitetail. Yes. Whitetail and turkeys are our wildlife crop. So 130 minimum. And uh, if somebody would shoot something under a 130, that's fine. Enjoy it, et cetera. But it's $100 per inch that you were under 130. So if they shot 120, then they owe us a check. Oh, for yes. Bucks. Interesting. I hadn't even thought about it from um, that aspect. And we'll have 70 hunters in this year, 2,800 ahead. And we've got a hunting lodge that includes their sleeping and a chef and grass-finished beef and so on. So it's it's a nice um, business to go with your rest. The key is we already have the land. and um, Right, yes. And most, the bulk of the hunters that have land, you know, they have 100 acres and they're putting corn and minerals out and so on. And we do the same thing, except we do it on 7,500 acres and you have a ultra trophy buck, let's call that 170 and above every thousand acres, not a hundred acres. Um, oh yes. Yes. And it just takes a, a big area that is well managed in, um, beginning September one, we'll, we'll, um, start feeding in 60 different hunting positions, uh, twice a week. 50 pounds of corn, uh, which brings just brings a deer in. We've got cameras in each spot, so we know exactly what's here, see where they're moving to, oh, yes. and so on. And things change as the season goes. And uh, deer come in from other areas. We hunt the perimeter hardest, the interior least hard, uh, with the idea it's a safe place or safer than the outside and certainly safer than the neighbor's. So safety and food, that's all there is in the deer world. <laughs> yes. Very interesting, James. 
let's go ahead and move on to our famous four questions. They're the same four questions we ask of all of our guests. Our first question is, what's your favorite grazing grass related book or resource? Um, let me say, uh, um, Jim, we follow Jim Garrish's model and he's been out here. Um, having said that, uh, any book that Alan Nation writes is uh, scripture as far as I'm concerned. That's, he was the founder of the Stockman Grass Farmer. And um, the very best book, which is one of your uh, uh, questions coming up, is Knowledge Rich Ranching by Alan Nation. Knowledge Rich Ranching. Uh, but everything he writes is right on the money. Very good. And has had a large influence on our operation. Our second question, what's your favorite tool to use on the farm? Oh, I hate machinery. <laughs> we have one tractor, 100 horse tractor, that's it. Um, and having said that, and then we have a variety of, uh, of side-by-sides. So I would have to say uh, I drove a Polaris side-by-side here. And uh, the one, the the old Polarises were great. Then they had a period where they had the midsize, and they were garbage. Um, and now the one thousands. During that period, they had a ranch model, uh, which they were kind of testing, and they no longer have it. But that's what became the uh, Polaris one thousand. And uh, I love that machine. Oh yes, is a side by side, you know. And having said that, um, it's interesting. I've mentioned Amazon a number of times, and I am diametrically opposed from a political standpoint. Having said that, uh, you might have you might need a starter for a machine, and it's uh, uh, two fifty nine at Polaris, and it's seventy nine, the same part on Amazon. Oh yeah, You'd be amazed. Probably two thirds parts we can buy on Amazon. And they'll cross-reference them for you and so on. Oh, yes. Very good. I get what you're saying about Amazon, and I share some of the same beliefs. Yeah, I still order from Amazon. I There's there's just things I can get from Amazon I can't get locally. Right. And I don't have half a day to run around looking. Exactly. You know, I, I don't want to make an ad for Amazon, but a lot of times I think about needing something, and, and by the time... I get to actually looking for it and try and do it. I could already had it here with Amazon, which I mean, I really like, but I agree with some of the other stuff too. <laughs> Our third question, what would you tell someone just getting started? Um, study what your neighbors do and do the opposite. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think that's great advice. I, no one's put it quite like that before, but that's a, that's great <laughs> advice. Really study. I mean, Stockman Grass Farmer, you need to get uh, all of Alan Nation's books. Uh, and there's uh, Zietzman. Uh, and by the way, on the bottom of my website, which is Ohio Land and Cattle, uh, you've got the videos, the their conferences. That is Pharaoh, Zietzman, uh, and go down the line of seminars that they've held or schools, I should say, 
and uh, as well as the books down under books and uh, uh, articles at the very bottom. Yeah. Yes, I see. And in addition, if you want to see what our land looks like, there's a plane ride that we filmed over the ranch. Said the ranch from the air. Oh, I will have to look at that. Oh, I see it right here. Ranch from a plane. Very interesting. And lastly, James, where can others find out more about you? Uh, just the website. Everything I know is on the website. website. And uh, <laughs> my dad died when he was 60. His dad when he was 60. My health is good, et cetera, but it's good right up until you tip over. So uh, we'll see. So I purposely put everything on there. So uh, it matters because I've thought it through uh, substantially from a business standpoint, not from uh, what, what did grandpa oh, yes. do? How do we run this yes. as a business and actually make money? We will put a link to your website on our show notes. And James, we really appreciate you coming on and sharing with us today. Well, I enjoyed it. Thank you. You're listening to the Grazing Grass Podcast, helping grass farmers learn from grass farmers. And every episode features a grass farmer and their operation. You can find the Grazing Grass Podcast on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And we encourage you to share our post. If you want to leave us a review, that's welcome as well. Also on the website, don't forget to sign up for our email list. And are you a grass farmer? We are looking for grass farmers to share about themselves and their operation and journey. If you're interested in doing that, go to our website, grazinggrass.com. Click on the Be Our Guest link. Until next time, keep on grazing grass. I mentioned earlier about the health issue, a little bit more information as we we said on the last episode, uh, my wife was diagnosed with breast cancer and we have, the outlook is good. We're just undergoing some uh, chemotherapy currently and should be getting through that. I, I do want to say thank you to everyone that's reached out. We appreciate the prayers and thoughts. And until next time, keep on grazing grass. I really hope you enjoyed today's conversation. I know I did. Thank you for listening. And if you found something useful, please share it. Share it on your social media. Tell your friends. Get the word out about the podcast. Helps us grow. If you happen to be a grass farmer and you'd like to share about your journey, go to grazinggrass.com and click on Be Our Guest. Fill out the form and I'll be in touch. We appreciate your support by sharing our episodes and telling your friends about it. You can also support our show by buying our merch. We get a little bit back from that. Another way to support the show is by becoming a Grazing Grass Insider. Grazing Grass Insiders enjoy bonus content, monthly Zooms, and discounts. You can visit the website, grazinggrass.com, click on support, and they'll have the links there. Also, if you haven't left us a review, please do. It really helps us as people are searching for podcasts. And I was just checking them, and we do not have very many reviews for 2024. So if you haven't left us a review, please do. Until next time, keep on grazing grass.